Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. And today we're continuing our Easter series, The Resurrection. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 29 to 34, as we hear a message entitled, Wake Up and Stop Sinning. Sometimes people have a difficulty in seeing how it is that what we believe and how we live are all part of one package, but it is. We all live out what we believe. So what do I mean? It was the Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky in his book, The Brothers Karamazov, who put words into the mouth of one of his characters. In the book, Ivan Karamazov says, if God does not exist, then everything is permitted. Indeed, he's right. He means that if God is not there, then there is no objective standard of right and wrong. And in that case, whether it be helping a little old lady across the street or murdering her and stealing her purse, there is no crime where there is no God to establish absolute right and wrong. Then everything is morally permitted. So is hypocrisy. So is lying, deceiving to get what we want. If God does not exist, then everything is permitted. Ideas really do have consequences. I recently had a conversation with someone who taught ethics at a secular university. I asked her, what is the basis upon which you establish what's right and what's wrong? She said, on the basis of societal norms. I said, do you mean that whatever a culture decides is morally good? She said, yes. And that's because she believed that man is the measure of all things. But of course, if she's right, that societal norms become the basis of right and wrong, how then do we condemn the Nazis for putting Jews into gas ovens? And furthermore, if the measure of right and wrong is determined by the majority in a culture, then by definition, whenever anyone disagrees with societal norms, they are, according to this logic, evil. And it is this idea that society determines what's good and what's evil that allows majorities to persecute minorities. No, no, Dostoevsky was right. If there is no God, then everything is permitted. I mean, think about it. If evolutionary biology is true, that only the fittest survive, then why would we help the weak and the unfortunate in our society, for they by definition have no right to survive? Nietzsche argued that, and Adolf Hitler agreed. But if, on the other hand, Christ has been raised from the dead, then God has begun to inaugurate his kingdom, and therefore a different standard of right and wrong is demanded, not only of Christians, but of the entire human race. Jesus has demonstrated not only that God exists, but that his kingdom will rule on the earth. Now, Why am I mentioning all of that? See, we've been studying 1 Corinthians 15. Paul has been challenging some in that church who believed that there was no bodily resurrection from the dead. Although they believed that Christ was raised bodily, they did not believe that believers in Christ would be raised bodily. But in response, Paul has said that since Christ has been raised from the dead, then those who are in Christ are assured of their own resurrection from the dead, and more so. The resurrection of Christ also testifies that death itself will one day be destroyed and that the kingdom of God will one day rule the earth. But now he adds something else. Once it's established that Christ has been raised from the dead, the way we live right here, right now, is radically altered. Ideas have consequences. So let's read our text. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 29 to 34. 
Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Now, clearly, from reading this passage, it seems that Paul is deeply concerned. The denial of the bodily resurrection from the dead has had consequences in the moral life of the believers in Corinth. Paul calls their present state like someone who's in a drunken stupor. So let's follow his line of thought. First, Paul will argue that there are non-Christians who have a greater hope than the believers in Corinth who deny the resurrection. And second, Paul is going to argue that confidence in the resurrection leads to a missional and to a moral foundation in life. And I'll trace that out as we study our passage. But let's start where Paul does. Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, that's an incredibly difficult verse. You know, there are those, and I mean by that the Mormon church, that actually perform baptismal services in order to bring salvation to people who have already died. Now, let's approach this verse with clarity. First, notice that Paul nowhere commands a practice to baptize on behalf of the dead. He doesn't say, since some people baptize on behalf of the dead, so should you. No, he never says that. So let's not make this passage say something that it doesn't say. This is not a command to practice baptism on behalf of the dead. Furthermore, the Bible does not teach that those who have died are granted a second chance. Hebrews 9.27, I would think, should settle this matter once and for all. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. And for that matter, Jesus' account of the rich man and Lazarus, recorded in Luke chapter 16, tells the story of two men who died, and at the point of death, both men are assigned either to heaven or to hell. And so there is no baptism that can rescue a man or a woman from hell. There is no second chance after death. If you want to get right with God, do it now. The Bible is very clear on this matter. Secondly, the Bible never teaches that one person can be baptized for another. See, baptism is an expression of our own faith. So what does this text actually teach? I think whatever explanation we give, one should probably be less than dogmatic about it. See, some argue that perhaps in Corinth, some believers who had been saved but did not have a chance to be baptized because they had died suddenly, then someone stood in to be baptized as a sign of the deceased person's saving faith. But of course, the Bible doesn't say that. Other people argue that the word for, as in baptized for the dead, could be translated as above. You know, in that case, there are those who argue that in Corinth, some were baptized over the graves of the dead, expressing their hope in the resurrection. Again, we're just guessing. Now, I don't want to be dogmatic here, but in my view, verse 29 is not talking about believers who are being baptized at all. 
Notice that in verse 29, Paul speaks of people who are baptized, and then in verse 30, he says, why are we in danger? Do you see what I mean? I'm arguing that the practice of baptism for the dead was not a Christian practice at all. Rather, it was more than likely the practice of some religious group of people that we now know nothing about. And so Paul is addressing the Christians in Corinth who do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. He says, if I understand him correctly, he says, then what do some non-Christian religious groups mean when they baptize people on behalf of the dead? See, apparently, they were non-Christians who were far more confident in the resurrection of the dead than some of the Christians in the church in Corinth. Paul is saying, even those guys are more confident in the resurrection than you guys are. You should be ashamed of yourself. Those guys have more hope than you do. And might I add, that's really not that unusual. I once stood at the bedside of a dying Christian and asked him what he thinks about now about the new heaven and the new earth, about the resurrection, about the life to come. And he told me, quite frankly, I never think about it. He said he believed in it, he just never thought about it. I was astonished. How does one stand at the foot of one's own grave and not have one's mind engaged in the world to come? Remember when I started, I said, ideas have consequences. Well, they do. The person who does not foster a robust belief in the resurrection of the body and does not nurture that hope throughout his life or her life has less hope at the point of death than a great many other people in different religions. Why is it that we have failed to nurture our minds on this valuable truth? What a tragedy when believers in Jesus are not known as the most courageous and hopeful people on earth. See, whenever our hearts are not set on that which lies before us, we stop looking like the people of God. Whenever we don't constantly consider the resurrection to come, our moral life today begins to degenerate. That's the point that Paul's trying to make. The Celebration Caribbean Cruise is scheduled for February 2018. Join Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, great musical guests in the entire Back to the Bible Canada ministry team on board the Royal Caribbean's Freedom of the Seas. It's a five-day journey to some of the most beautiful and exotic islands and locations. Enjoy everything the cruise has to offer, along with inspirational Bible teaching, worship, fellowship, encouragement, and laughter. This is a vacation event for the entire family that you won't want to miss. So make plans today and call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit backtothebible.ca for all the cruise details. Space is limited, so don't be disappointed and book now. And just as an added reminder, all ministry vacation events are paid for by the participants and no ministry resources are used for this purpose. Paul has been arguing that ideas have consequences. If I've understood him rightly, he tells those in Corinth that deny the resurrection that they have less hope than some non-Christians. Their faith in Christ is misplaced if it does not put the resurrection at the center. And then he takes the argument further. 
He now argues that a confidence in the resurrection makes all the difference in how we live our lives right now. In verses 30 to 34, he lays out four practical things that happen when we gain a confidence in the resurrection. The first is a willingness to face hardship, persecution, trial, and even the prospect of imminent death with courage and with confidence. Look again at verses 30 to verse 32a. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Let's start at the end of this passage. Paul spent three years at Ephesus during his third missionary journey. Luke records that in Acts 19. Paul's experiences there included getting kicked out of the local synagogue, being accused of hurting the economy of Ephesus, a riot broke out against him in that city, and generally there was an antagonism against him in his ministry. But Luke does not mention Paul being thrown into the games and fighting beasts. And furthermore, you know, there are some Bible scholars who argue that Paul couldn't have been thrown to the games because his Roman citizenship would have prevented that from happening. But remember that Paul was savagely whipped in Philippi without a trial, and his Roman citizenship should have prevented that as well. It was only after they had beaten him that he ever got a chance to make an appeal to his rights. So I think that's what happened at Ephesus as well. The mob violence was such that Paul never had a chance to appeal to his rights as a citizen, but God did deliver him from what, in my opinion, was a hastily arranged event in which he was called to fight wild animals. But by God's grace, says Paul, he survived. But all of that gets us back to the point. Paul asks the question, why am I in danger every hour? Why have I come to the point of death where, in his words, he dies every day? His ministry brought him to the point of death frequently. He was always prepared for death. And all of that speaks of Paul's personal courage. In his ministry, he frequently faced threats, but he was not intimidated by them. And of course, he gives the explanation for his courage. He was convinced that for him to live was Christ and to die was gain. And so the first practical consequence was a life that deeply thought about the resurrection, and it was his courage. Now the second, it's a life of purpose. Look again at the latter half of verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, verse 32 is a direct quote from Isaiah 22, verse 13. Studying Isaiah on this matter, it's fascinating. In Isaiah, the prophet is predicting the utter destruction of Jerusalem. So listen to Isaiah 22, verse 5. For the Lord of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting on the mountains. You see, in Isaiah's day, forces were being brought together and Jerusalem would be destroyed. Indeed, the breaches in the wall were many, and so it was clear that Jerusalem would not withstand the attack against her. And so how did the people of Jerusalem respond? Well, Isaiah 22 verse 12 says, In that day, the Lord of hosts called for weeping and mourning and wearing of sackcloth. In other words, this was a day to approach the throne of God, wearing the clothing of humility and coming and seeking God in repentance and asking him for mercy. And is that what happened? Well, no, it didn't. In fact, listen to verse 13. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, 
the citizens of Jerusalem had long ago discounted God. Remember, ideas have consequences. And so when the day of trouble came, they simply said, well, let's just have a party and go down to death celebrating with wine, women, and song. And that, says Paul, is the very thing that happened to the Christians in Corinth. The reason why so many believers were living reckless lives and were disobedient to the Lord is because they made no connection between this life and the life to come. They weren't thinking about the resurrection. So they lived for today. Do you know how many people think this way today? I mean, many do. Since death awaits us all, so many people have tried to anesthetize the pain of their impending death with entertainment and parties and mindless pursuits and endless ways of trying to drive out the terror of what lies before them. If you, my dear friend, want to live a life devoted to the Lord, you'll drink deeply, not of alcohol, but of the truth of the resurrection of the dead. Instead of asking yourself how to get the most out of life here and now, ask yourself what matters in the light of the reality of the resurrection. If resurrection is your hope in this life, then your morals are going to reflect that. Ideas do have consequences. But if your hope is in this life only, the course of your life changes dramatically. Let's go now to the third outcome of the belief in the resurrection. I give myself to holiness. Look again at verse 34a. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. You know, if I believe in the kingdom to come, I will lay aside the sin that so easily entangles and everything that belongs to Satan's miserable, ruined, and defeated kingdom. I will live as a son of the kingdom of God. Let me end by giving two illustrations. Way back in the year 1981, during the Byron Nelson golf tournament in Dallas, a massive tree limb broke from one of the trees and it fell on top of a spectator and it killed him instantly. It happened near the third hole where Charles Cootie was playing at the time. Shortly after the accident, Cootie was interviewed by a reporter and this is what he said. He said, after running over and seeing the accident, I tried to play golf, yet I had no desire to play after that. All of a sudden, those three-foot putts didn't seem that important. Indeed, that's what the resurrection doctrine does, doesn't it? It will teach you what's very important today and that which simply isn't. Now my second illustration. At the cathedral in Milan in Italy, there are three inscriptions over three doors. Over the right-hand door, it says, all that pleases is but for a moment. And over the left-hand door, it says, all that troubles is but for a moment. And over the central door, a very simple sentence, nothing is important save that which is eternal. Now, from those statements and the way in which you live your life today, can it be said of you that you believe in the resurrection? Or are you a practical atheist who never thinks about the resurrection and lives that way as well? See, we've looked at three outcomes of a life that is deeply immersed in the resurrection. First, life is lived with hope and courage. Second, life is lived with purpose. And third, life is lived with a strong moral center. And then finally, fourth, life is lived with love. Check out how this passage ends, last part of verse 34. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. See, I wonder if you've ever experienced shame because of the lost. See, we live in a country in which there are many people who will be born, they will live, and then they will die. 
without ever having to decide what to do with Jesus. And that is not acceptable. Furthermore, it's shameful. You see, in spite of the fact that there are churches throughout this land, and the faith has been in this land since its foundation, yet many Christians and churches do not make the proclamation of their gospel the central mission. I'm ashamed at how lacking we are in passion for evangelism, in church planting, and in reaching out to the lost. I fear we've lost our way. The reality of death is lost on us. The reality of our guilt before God in that millions face the prospect of standing before the judgment, having to pay for their sins without having a sin substitute. See, that's lost on many of us. That Christ, by his death and resurrection, offers us a gift that if we would but confess our sins and turn from self to him, that he would remove our sins and make us whole before God. I wonder if some of us, when we think about it, might come to realize that our attitude clearly portrays that we have no love, for we would gladly leave men and women to their eternal fate without the courage and the mission to abandon ourselves and our love for this world and rather invest it in the salvation of the lost. Yes, what Paul writes is intended not just to result in shame, but in repentance and in a new commitment. O Lord, open our hearts so that we might be willing ambassadors of the gospel of Christ to this lost world. John, I found your message today quite fascinating, actually, because I was asking myself the same question you were asking, I think, over and over and over again. Uh, Do I think about the resurrection? And I have to ask, I'm not quite sure if I do, but what do you think about when you think of the resurrection? Well, there are a couple of things. I mean, one, I keep reminding myself that this life is not all there is. Um, You know, life doesn't end when I sign off at whatever age that happens to be. And I also remind myself that there is a connection between what I do now and what comes in eternity. Uh, I am, of course, learning to rule and reign with Christ. Christ is teaching me that. So these are just the, the beginning of the lessons of being submissive to him. So, I mean, a lot of that is always connected to one another. But I remind myself also that I will stand before God and I will receive a reward for how I have functioned here. So all of those things kind of are a part of my thinking process. And I think we should remind ourselves of this every single day. Remind ourselves of dying, remind ourselves of resurrection, remind ourselves of the rewards that are to follow. That's a great reminder, John. Thanks so much. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Every year we have the privilege of putting together a five-message series of Dr. Neufeld's most impactful messages of the year. So available to anyone who would ask as our free gift, we want to make available for this month only the Highlight Reel 2016. Five wonderful, inspiring, and biblical messages from Dr. Neufeld's Journey to the Cross, Remembering the Reformation, and Finding Forgiveness, and other series as well. All of these messages represent the excellence in Bible teaching that you can expect from Back to the Bible Canada. So please take the opportunity to ask for your free Highlight Reel 2016 CD series today as our gift. 
To request your copy, find out more about Back to the Bible Canada, or offer a much-appreciated ministry donation, call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.